We are in a series. We're calling this the Summer of Wisdom. And so hopefully you have grown wise over these last few weeks in a book of the, the book of Ecclesiastes, a book of wisdom in the Old Testament. And so this week we are in chapter six, beginning with verse 10 and going through verse 13 of chapter seven, Ecclesiastes chapter six, beginning with verse 10 and then going through. Verse 13 of chapter 7. Let's uh, stand together as we read God's word. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than is the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good and with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? You may be seated and let's take a few minutes to reflect together on God's word. you have your Bibles open there, it'll be helpful for you to follow along as we look at these 15 or so verses. <clears throat> when, you, when you're preaching through a book, when you're listening to the book yourselves and reading through it, you, you try to get a sense of, you know, what's the mood? What's the, the goal? What's the objective of the writer? What's, you try to get in his mind so you get a sense of what he's He's aiming at. And one of the primary aims of the writer Koheleth or the preacher of Ecclesiastes is to produce an enormous, a, a massive, a giant amount of humility. 
One of the primary purposes of him writing this book is to produce in mankind, in humanity, this enormous amount of humility. And humility, of course, is one of the most difficult character traits to obtain. And often when you obtain it, it's difficult to also maintain. And so it was the lack of humility, or maybe said in another way, the presence of pride which preceded the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Humanity didn't want to humbly live underneath God's word. Humanity preferred to live under its own word, to decide what it was best for humanity to do, instead of living under what God saw that was best. And we've been dealing with the devastating consequences of Genesis 3 ever since. So, so when Koheleth, the, the preacher, comes, he realizes he's fighting this uphill battle with his reader. He realizes that one of the main forces that's working against him as the writer of this book of wisdom is that when people read it, they're going to lack humility. He knows that when people read it, some people are going to say, well, I already knew that. And so he's fighting against that. And as we've read through the book so far, we've seen this consistent attack on human pride. Genesis, I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter one. He begins with this startling comment. Generations come and generations go and there is no remembrance of them. Uh, The way I described it is a generation sort of lands on the shore of human timeline and it and it makes a big splash and it stretches out and it tries to leave its mark. But as as wonderful as the splash and as far reaching as their mark may be, you know, if you sit there just a few seconds, it quickly recedes and another generation comes and pretty soon you, you just lost the mark of that previous generation. There's there's no remembrance And Koheleth can even anticipate man's response by saying, what do you mean there won't be any remembrance of me? I'm on Facebook. I have friends. I have followers. Do you know how many times my last comment was liked? And so Koheleth comes in with this cold bucket of water and says, no, you're like Snapchat. We, we put your picture up for 10 seconds and quickly it fades. It just moves away and it's not even remembered. Chapter three, this beautiful poem that we talked about a couple of weeks ago for everything. There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a, a time to be born, a time to die. The, the entire purpose of the poem is to remind mankind that he's not in control. That God's in control. No matter what the season, no matter what the extremes, every season, every time, every day, every event is managed and manipulated and controlled by God Almighty. And it's not managed or manipulated by you or me. That's the whole purpose of the poem. Is to help you see your complete lack of control of the events under the sun. And the reason he's writing this poem is because he realizes there's a real lack of humility in humanity. And we see it again here at the end of chapter six. Another sort of cold splash of water. Chapter six, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And whatever is known 
And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Naming in the Bible is a function of authority. So when Adam comes into the garden and names the animals, he's he's authoritative in that way. And so what the writer is saying here, what the preacher is saying is that everything's already been named. When you and I come into the world, everything's been known, everything's been named. In other words, you're not in authority over anything. You're not even in authority over your days. You come into the world because of an authority, somebody stronger than you. You exit the world because somebody has determined your days. Second phrase here in verse 10, it is known what man is. God steps back and he he sets a boundary. He sets a limitation on mankind. Mankind can do or can be these things and he can or cannot be other things. This final phrase, man's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. Uh, Like a newborn baby, mankind comes in kicking and screaming into the world saying, of course I have authority. My parents told me I could be whatever I wanted to be. I don't live by anybody's limitations. The only limitations I might have are the ones I place on myself. And Kohelis says, you know, you can rant and rave and rebel, but it's, it's no use. It's vanity. Why? You're arguing with someone infinitely stronger than you are. Then he concludes with these two unsettling questions. Verse 12. Who knows what is good for a man while he lives? Who can tell man what will be after him? Who, who knows what is good? Who knows what will happen? And the answer is nobody. Nobody knows what's good for man during his life. I mean, you have information, you have advisors, you try to, to take your wisdom and you try to apply it to certain situations. And of course, some of them turn out right and some of them don't turn out so well, but, but still you don't know, right? I mean, no matter how much information you have, no matter how certain you are of a decision, there's still some portion. You don't know how things are going to turn out just in this life. And certainly you have no idea how things are going to turn out after you pass off this scene, as you exit the stage. You have no control of what happens afterward. And so you reach this point in the text and you could sort of discouragingly want to throw up your hands and say, so, what, so what's the use? I mean, if I don't, if I don't control my days, if, if I'm not in control of the, the situations, if, if I can't tell what's going to happen in this life, if I have no control of what happens afterwards, if I'm a generation that just splashes and no matter how I st- much I stretch out, I'm not remembered, you could sort of discouragingly and sort of fatalistically say, what's the use? And it's precisely at this point, this is where Koheleth is trying to drive the reader to get to this point of despair Despairing in your own self prepares you to rely on something or someone that is better. 
See, it's, it's, it's only when you get to that point of despair of yourself and say, I can't figure this out, so I need somebody stronger than me. I need someone above the sun to come in and give me wisdom on how to live this life right now. And Kohela sort of downloads. You see, there's a, a change in the way that the text is written in verse in chapter seven. Now he's downloading all these proverbs. And you can see that what ties them together is this word better. There's some better way to live. Verse one, verse two, verse five, verse uh, three, on and on. You see, there is a better way to, to live. If you're willing to live under the word and the wisdom of God, there is a better way to live out your life here. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to to see the the desperation coming out of chapter six and then this hope that there's a better way to live. God has provided wisdom for us to say, yes, your life is so brief, but in your brief life, there is a better way to live. And so he mentions a number of three, a number of these things. And let's just read through them. Verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death better than the day of birth. I think the way these two statements are connected is on the day of your birth, you were given a name. It was a it was a beginning. It was there was excitement. There was hope. There was anticipation. But the question is, will you end well? You were given a name in the beginning on the day of your birth, but the real question is, What's your name going to smell like at the end? What kind of name will you have earned by the day of your death? There's an ancient proverb that says every man has three names. First, the name his parents give him. Second, the name that his friends give him. And third, the name that he earns himself. So Koheleth is asking this question, what, what kind of name are you earning yourself? Well, on the day of your death, will your name be like this precious ointment or will it stink? Proverbs 10, verse 7, the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. I was riding my bike yesterday and I came around this corner and somebody had dropped off some dead fish. And man, I mean, you, you know, 50, 60 feet prior, 56, it just rot. And so we're going to stand here, your friends, your family. We're going to be in a church. We're going to be in a chapel somewhere. We're going to stand around a graveside and your name's going to be mentioned. What kind of smell is going to come out at that point? Is it going to be some perfume, some ointment that people are going to go, oh, yes. Or is it going to smell like rot? Some of you might remember the scandal surrounding the PTL club that was just outside of Charlotte many years ago. Jim Baker, the president of the PTL club at that particular time was a man named Richard Dorch. And he went to prison for mishandling money. And after he got out of prison, he wrote a book. This is what he includes in one of his chapters. In the midst of my shame, I hurt the son who bore my name. And I had to do the most painful thing I've ever done. I sat down with him and said, Rich, 
You must do what is best for you and your family. And with all that's going to happen, I would understand if you wanted to change your name. See, because Richard Dorch had become a rot. And he'd passed that on by giving his name to his son. And so Koheleth is saying, yeah, when you're born, it's a great day. There's all kinds of hope. There's all kinds of anticipation. There's all kinds of excitement. But the day of your death, that's what we're trying to look at. What kind of name are you going to have that day? And when you're thinking about that day, do you see how that helps you live this day? When I have that day in mind, it helps me to live this day, perhaps in a different, different way. So when we're standing there around your casket and your name is mentioned, are they going to say, wow, they were cheerful? Or will they say they were critical? They were winsome or they were whiners. He was generous or he was greedy. He was content or he was controlling. He was faithful or he was foolish. Verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. When, when you read these things, they seem counterintuitive. I mean, how can the house of mourning be better than the house of feasting? How could sorrow be better than laughter? But of course, when you reflect on it, you realize the preacher's point is you have to have some reality about your death in order to live your life well. You have to understand something about your death in order for life to make sense. That's what he's trying to get the reader to do is look at the end of a matter and then live your life according to that end. Some of you have read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Second habit, begin with the end in mind. See, just like in a business, you operate your same way in your life. I'm, I'm beginning today with my end in mind. That's what's starting to guide my wisdom and my ways. I'm living with this end in mind. Kohela says, when you go to the house of mourning, when you stand in the hallway at hospice, you have a different kind of perspective than when you go to the July 4th picnic. There's something in those moments that crystallizes your thoughts about eternity that when you're in the house of, of feasting, when you're, in, when you're in the house of laughter, you're really not thinking about those things. For uh, three months during a couple of summers, right after I'd got out of college, and I don't know why I got roped into this, but I was a grave digger. So it's really not the kind of thing, it's a resume builder. But I did that during the summer. And so when you're a grave digger, what happens is you've got these, you know, plots and the backhoe comes up and digs out the hole, right? So it's six or seven or however many feet down. Uh, but the backhoe can't square out the hole. Backhoe can basically dig out the hole. But then when you, when you put this uh, crypt in the hole, when you put this concrete crypt in the hole, it's got to be squared out. So guess who gets to square out the hole? The college guys. So I spent my summer down in a grave hole, squaring out holes. It's, it's a little creepy. <laughs> because, you know, it's, you know, here's the top and you're down here squaring out this hole. 
And every week, I got this fresh reminder. This is where everybody ends up. Everybody ends up in a hole. When you're thinking that way, it helps shape what you do today. It helps you live better today when you know this is the fate of all mankind. And it may feel like it's so far away. But Koheleth is trying to come in and say, it's just like a shadow. Just quickly, your life just so quickly passes by. And if you could spend just a few minutes in the grave, you would, it would affect the way you lived your life here on earth. Martin Luther says, it's good for us to invite death into our presence when it's still at a distance and not on the move. <laughs> it's better, better to invite death in when it still feels like at a distance rather than, hey, it's on the move and I'm in its crosshairs. Koheleth says, it's only when you're ready to die are you really able to live. So it's worth asking, have you? Have you spent some time mentally, physically, and most importantly, spiritually in that hole? Your day is already on the calendar. Today, it's one day closer. Do you know the one who's conquered death? Are you sure what's going to happen to you on the next day after your death? If not, today is the day. Today's a great day. Today's a great day to think about that. While it may still be some distance away, think about it today before the day is on the move. Verse 5 and 6. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. What a great verse. Oh, I, I want you to love this verse the way I love this verse. I want you to write this on your heart. I want you to circle it. I want you to underline it. And if you're in your teens or you're in your 20s, this could be like your guiding principle for a long time. This could save you from so many big problems. It's so, so much better to hear the rebuke of a wise person than to just constantly have your soul fed by the song of fools. Most scholars think that the preacher of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And, and the book of Proverbs is primarily written by Solomon. And if you've read through any of the Proverbs, you know it's this man who's looking at his son. He's saying, my son, here's my wisdom. Please live this way. I mean, you're going to be so tempted to live a different way. And chapter after chapter starts out in the same way. Proverbs 1.8, listen, my son, to your father's instructions. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 2 my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turn your ear to wisdom. Proverbs 3. My son, don't forget my teaching. Keep my commands in your heart. They will prolong your life. They will bring you prosperity. The, the wise father saying to his son, I'm, I'm pleading for you to pay attention. To, to fill your mind with the word of God. To understand the rebuke of the word of God. To, to be willing to embrace the wisdom of God, rather than sing the song of fools. You can hear the father saying, turn off your iPod. Pay attention 
This is the, this is the wisdom on how to live according to, to what's best for you and before God. Now, when I got to this point, I thought I've got to give a good example of the Song of Fools. And the Song of Fools is sung in every generation. So I don't want my particular choice to be limited to any particular generation. But I thought I'd pick one from today's generation. The Song of Fools. Let's go all the way tonight. No regrets, just love. We can dance until we die. You and I will be young forever. You make me feel like I'm living the teenage dream, baby. You know it. Katy Perry. It is an awesome dance song. I mean, if I could dance, I would like to dance to this song. But it's the song of fools. It is a song of fools. Let's let's go all the way tonight. You and I, we're going to be young forever. See, you hear that? And you've got the song of fools playing over and over and over in the tape of your mind. And when it comes to this word, it just seems so uh, perpendicular to your thinking. And Koheleth is coming in trying to, to splash some cold water and say, your life is like a, a shifting shadow. It's like a vapor. It's, it's going to be quickly gone. So please lead your life in, in careful ex- inspection before the Lord and before your last day. And we'll get to more of that in chapter 11 when we get to the end of the book. So are you receptive to godly wisdom do, do you hear a rebuke? See, in order to, to have that kind of capability, you have to be humble. Verse 6, the first verse, verses 1 through 6 might be categorized sort of wisdom from life's perspectives. You're listening to an old person's wisdom. You're, you're looking at your own grave and you're trying to get some perspective on your life and Verse 7 through 10 could be categorized as wisdom from life's temptations. And so Koheleth, just one verse after another, gives these proverbs here about temptations that draw us away from God's wisdom. Let's look at them in turn. Verse 7, surely the oppressed or the person who's extorting others drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. The first great temptation that we all face is greed. In, in a culture lubricated by money, it's, it's very tempting to believe that money is what makes things move. Money makes the world move. Money is the mother's milk of politics, they say. If you're a big Gilligan's Islands, Gilligan Island fan, you remember Thurston Howell III? What does he say? Money. It's the universal language. See, everything moves on money in under the sun. It's the universal language. And it's a great and a grave temptation to believe that God operates that way. He doesn't operate that way. So greed is one of the first great temptations. If, if God's not doing it, then, then you can just use your money to make things happen. It can, can be a terrible temptation for wealthy business people in a church. 
to, to be in the world and see how money makes things move and to come into the church and really not live underneath God's word, but continue to operate according to wealth. That's not the way the church operates. It's a terrible temptation. Number two, verse eight. Better is the end of a thing than, than its beginning. And the patient is better in spirit than the proud in spirit. The, the second great temptation, Kohela says, is, is pride that leads to impatience. Impatience. The, the proud person wants his way right away. The proud person pushes things forward without consideration of others because he's the most important person in the room and everything should revolve around him. It's a pretty good description of a two-year-old. But unfortunately, some people haven't emotionally matured past that point. They're proud. They're the smartest person in the room. It should be followed by them. And they're going to be angry or frustrated if it doesn't go their way. And it should go their way right away. That's the proud person. And, and it leads to an impatience. And Koheleth contrasts the proud in spirit to the patient in spirit. He says it's much more important how things end up rather than how they begin. It's, it's important to take the long view. He's really just repeating Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger. Refrain from anger. Turn away from wrath. Don't be anxious. It only leads to evil. Being still, having a patient spirit works against, against, works against the temptation of pride which really leads into verse 9, this third temptation. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Oh, again, such a critical verse. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger, it lodges in the heart of a fool. One easy way to measure whether you trust in God's timing, one easy gauge to look at, as to whether you trust in God's timing is how angry you become when things don't work out your way. See, that's when you really know. I have a certain idea, I have a certain time frame. It is not going to work out that way. What's my reaction? That gauge tells you how much you're dealing with this particular issue, pride and anger. And I want to pile on extra verses here because this point is, is, is a, such a big problem um, in so many different ways. It, it's, it's a main temptation that causes pro bigger problems. And I say this to people, and I've probably said it to many of you here at some point. When people come and they're trying to solve a problem, one of the main things I say is don't let your reaction become the problem. Don't let the process become the problem. Because what happens when you have a problem? If you're quick to anger and you explode, then now you've got two problems. So you've got the presenting problem, and now we've got your attitude towards the problem. You know this, don't you? And if you've had to deal with anybody, you've seen this in some way. We've got a problem, and it creates a, some kind of pressure or stress or tension. But then you come in, and anger is lodged in your heart. And so you just spill out like a, a volcano. You erupt, and now we've got two problems. We've got your eruption, and we've got the problem. And so often, the problem, the process, dwarfs the problem. 
And so this is Kohelis' help here is saying, please don't do that. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine: a patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays foolishness. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: a hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. Proverbs sixteen thirty one: whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than the one who takes a city. James chapter 1, verse 19. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If you're an outfielder, you're learning to play baseball. One of the things that you have to learn right away is when somebody hits a a fly ball out in the outfield is how to judge, you know, how far the ball is and how, what kind of speed it's coming at. And is it going to be before you or over your head? And if you're a, a co- coach of a good outfielder, here's the first discipline you tell the outfielder. You know what it is? When you see the ball coming out the bat, you know it's coming to the outfield. The first step you want to take is, is back. See, you can always run forward at great speed. But so often you see it coming and you run forward and then you realize, uh oh, it's over my head and it takes a lot more energy to run back. And see, that's what happens so many times in intense conversations is in anger, you rush forward, you mess it up and it's a lot harder to walk it all back. How many times have you, you've rushed forward verbally and you go, oh, I wish I could take that back. See, see, the outfielder is having to learn something. Kohelet is saying is, take your first step back. Be slow to anger. Don't be the first. I've got to jump in. I've got to say this. Because then that process creates a problem that so frequently becomes bigger than the problem itself. And so it's worth us asking here, when things don't go your way, do you step back? Or do you race forward? Are you patient? Do you take the long view? Verse 10, final temptation. Kohela says, don't say this. This is primarily aimed, I think, at people in the older generation. Why were the former days better than these? You hear that? I mean, last year, in the 20th century, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 50s, whatever. It used to be God was more real. God was more present. God was more alive. Things were better back then. That's typically something that you say when you get older. And what what does Kohala say? That's foolish. That's foolish. When you say that, you don't know what you're talking about. You see, you're assuming you know how God works. And you were crystal clear about that. And now, you know, he's not working that way anymore. See, he's just saying that's foolishness. Don't assign yourself that seat. That's only a seat for God. God's still working in many ways today, whether you happen to see it or not. And so he has this rebuke. It's not from wisdom that you would say something like that. Let's let's draw ourselves to a conclusion here in verse 13. We kind of 
come full circle because he asked another question like he did at the end of chapter 6. You're, you're considering the work of God and you ask this question, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Answer, nobody. God has made a crook in the lot, a crook in your life. You can't make it straight if God has made it that way. It's a poetic way of saying things are the way God wants them to be and we don't have the ability to overrule the Almighty. In the 1700s, there was a preacher named Thomas Boston. Boston. He was in Scotland. And he was a preacher that had physical problems, also some emotional problems. He was, he was known as a man who was a man of melancholy. He had seasons of discouragement, maybe depression. His wife suffered from chronic physical illness as well, well as mental illness. But perhaps his, great, his greatest trials came from uh, having to bury six of their ten children. And of those, most people think the most difficult loss was one of the sons named Ebenezer. Ebenezer means the Lord helped us. So the Bostons gave birth to a son, named him Ebenezer, and that son died. The next pregnancy resulted in a son. And the Boston said, well, maybe this is the way of God replacing the first one. So we'll call him Ebenezer. And Ebenezer number two died. One of Thomas's, Thomas Boston's last sermons was on Ecclesiastes 7.13 titled, The Crook in the Lot. What's crooked in your life and that you can't make it straight if God has made it crooked. You can hear where he's coming from, from his life experience. Let me just read a few sentences. There's a certain train, of course, of events by the providence of God falling to every one of us during our lifetime in this world. And that's our lot. So your lot in life, these experiences that you have. In that train of events, some fall out as cross to us. It's the crook. It's against the grain. These make the crook in our lot. Some days are soft and agreeably glide on, but by and by there is some incident which alters that course and it grates on us. It pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. I love this line. Complainers are apt to make odious comparisons. In other words, they look at the lot of other people and discern that they have nothing but what is straight. <laughs> see, I have a crook in my lot, but when I look at you, all I can see is that you have straight in your lot. That's a complainer. That's a whiner. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There is no perfection here. There is no lot out of heaven without a crook. So Boston understood there was nothing we can do to straighten out what God has made crooked. We're, we're under the power of the sovereign, omnipotent ruler of the universe. And we don't have the power to edit his plan. 
Whatever God has made crooked, man cannot make straight. And one reason he has a crook in our lot is to help you and I humbly live before his word rather than live according to our wisdom. That's one of the main reasons. So today, the preacher, I'm just preaching someone else's sermon, would want us to evaluate and you can pick the place that maybe the Lord has spoken to you. Is it you need to learn how to take a step back? You need to understand that God's made some things crooked and no matter how hard you work, they're going to be crooked. And then you live according to that way. That your days are like a passing shadow. You're not going to be remembered. You live with the end in mind makes a difference on how you treat your wife. It makes a difference in how you do business. It makes a difference in what you say today because you're living with the end in mind. Let's pray together. Lord, in this book and in particularly this passage, you have just been like a, a, a waterfall of wisdom. And I trust that this... Um, this text for these people sitting in this chair, even if this is their first time in the church, was a divine appointment of some kind to say for you to say to your people, hey, you need to hear this. I don't know and would even not even pretend to know what that would be. But by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, by the word that is alive and active and cuts to the marrow of every human soul, it is your word for your people today. We're thankful for your divine care for us, that you would give us wisdom to live better days here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.